We began this study on the imagination, stressing that the Hebraic view was not one which made the visual primary, but which called for hearing God's word as primary over seeing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. We will do and we will hear. To the Hebrew, hearing and obeying are the same. And to the God of the Hebrews, it's far more important what we do than what we gaze upon. Uh, I've said this in circles where people have said, uh, what about Micah 6.8? He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? The Hebrew there is, it has been spoken to you, O man, what is good. So uh, here again, hearing is seeing in the Hebraic foundation. But this fact can be very misunderstood. The stress on hearing over seeing doesn't mean that there is no seeing. It means that something wrong has happened in the soul of man that causes us to want to worship the wrong thing. John refers to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life in First John chapter 2. These three aspects of our fallen nature are in direct opposition to the unfallen posture of trusting rather than lusting, believing rather than seeing, and humbly obeying rather than pride. So God requires faith in his invisible but trustworthy word. He must reverse the lie of the garden in which the enemy showed man the fruit and then convinced Adam and Eve that God's word was not enough. To reverse this lie, he must man must hear first and believe it. The reason faith is what pleases God is because it's the very opposite of what Adam and Eve embraced at the fall. They refused God's word and went with their appetites, the lust of the flesh, embraced what their eyes saw, the lust of the eyes, and chose willfully to go after the object of that desire at the terrible cost of heart relationship with God, the pride of life. Faith is the reverse of that. Hebrews 11, verse 1 Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse 6 of that same chapter, Whoever comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Then verse 27 says, Moses endured by seeing him who is invisible. We see the invisible with the heart of faith. Mary pointed out that in my first message on Adam and the imagination before the fall, that it seems as if I was saying Adam had no imagination at all. What I should have said was Adam's unfallen imagination was not separate from his powers of reason. There was no brokenness that marred his image-making powers. So I was attempting to explain, and not very well, evidently, (laughs) that Adam's unfallen thought processes would not be imaginative in the way we tend to think of the term imaginative. But I didn't mean to suggest that he had no imagination. On the contrary, his imagination must have been at a level of expression we cannot imagine. Made in the image of God, he would 
imagine like God does. So how does God imagine? Well, it must be safe to say that God had to imagine the world before he created it. In other words, what came to be manifested in the physical realm had to have an imaginary form in the mind of God before it could be expressed in the material world. Otherwise, we'd have to assume that God didn't know what was going to happen when he said light be until light appeared. So to imagine is to move and act in the very image of God. It's not the imagination per se that is out of order, but the heart that drives the imagination. The Tower of Babel was a work of fallen, rebellious imaginations of men. God interrupted its progress by confusing the languages. Why? Because Genesis eleven seven, God says, Now nothing they purpose to do will be impossible to them. The danger of the human imagination cut loose from God's word and set in motion on its own will always lead to evil, not only because man's heart is crooked, but because of the kingdom of darkness manipulating it. But it's foolish to try to avoid that fact by simply rejecting the use of the imagination altogether. Paul tells us we are God's workmanship, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, King James Version. But the word workmanship in the Greek there is poema. This is the word in Greek where we get our English word poem. And you've heard me say it, and you've heard other people say it, that we are God's poem. But that's really not a very correct way of saying that. It does not mean we are God's poem, but we are God's created work. It, it doesn't hold true to say that because a word in Greek has produced an English word that we use to describe a written work of poetry, that that automatically then means that we are God's written work of poetry. In other words, all poems are created works, but not all created works are poems. But it is okay to point out that we are a work of God which came from God's inner being, his imagination. So man will also create from his own inner being like his creator does. So let's stop here for a moment to address a rather demanding point. That defining the imagination cannot be done in a phrase or a sentence or even a paragraph. Let me show you why. We use the term imagination to refer to at least half a dozen or more functions of the human soul. First, the image-making power of the mind. If I say picture a large dog, you'll picture one. Number two, we use it to refer to the creative or inventive. We say Edison invented the light bulb. Actually, it was Jonas Tesla, but that's another subject. Number three, uh, we speak of imagination when we make up things. We say things like, they just made the whole thing up. And that's usually referring not just to imaginative concepts, but to falsehoods. Number four, we use it to refer to creative fiction, the imagination, the land of Oz or Narnia or Middle Earth. Number five, we speak of it in reference to mystery, adventure, and romance. We say things like, her imagination took her into the place where all her dreams come true, at least for a few minutes. Number six, imagination re refers to the intrusion of dark imagination or evil. 
We say things like, his imagination went from fear of what might be out the window to the horrible realization that the noise was something right out the window. Then number seven, the intervention of the invisible real. To pagans, they spoke of the muse, where we get the word music. But to the Judeo-Christian mind, we speak of inspiration, the revelation of the Holy Spirit, stirring up the creative imagination. I mean, all of these, we, I mean, those are commonsensical things, but if you really start delving into the subject of the imagination, you have to start delineating these differences. Also, to try to talk about the imagination, we have to end up wrestling with these subjects, at least seven of them, and you might think of more. To talk about the imagination, we have to talk about image and symbol and how those images and symbols vary from culture to culture. We have to talk about memories and what our imagination does with our memories. Number three, we have to talk about desire. Our imagination produces concepts in us from the core of our desires. But then we have to talk about masculine and feminine, male and female, man and woman, mother and father. This leads to gender identity issues, which leads to sexuality and all the emotions that go with all these issues. And that opens the door to dealing with all that is related to being human. So you can see again why I've put off for so long trying to do a series simply on the imagination. It's about like doing a series on humanity. A bit too large of an ocean for such a tiny little ship. Still, we have to try. So if you're willing to keep paddling this ocean in our little boat, let's let's keep going. Now, a hyper-religious fear of the imagination misunderstands the first commandment against worshiping other gods and making idols of them. And in a wrong-headed fear of sin, it denies one of the most vitally important aspects of being human, the imagination. To deny the imagination any place in human life is not only nonsensical, it's impossible. We do imagine. We will imagine. The issue now is how and for what purpose will we imagine? What comes up from our imagination tells us what's in our heart. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 21 commands us, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for out of it come the forces that control your life. You're not going to be able to watch over your heart at all, much less with diligence if you don't understand the imagination. What we imagine fuels our desires. What we desire fuels our appetites. Our appetites fuel our habits. Our habits produce our lifestyle. Our lifestyle determines our destiny. You can't think wrong and live right. And all imaginations carry an accompanying emotion. There is no picture without a feeling. There's no feeling without a picture. So we don't very often speak about healing someone's, quote, feelings. Rather, we address the question of what is going on in the imagination. The image-making mechanism of the mind is a radar screen that informs us where an enemy may be approaching. 
To turn off the radar screen is to place ourselves in greater danger of attack, invasion, or defeat. Among those who fear the imagination itself, as if it is a dangerous or even sinful human function, are often people with strong church backgrounds, yet deeply troubled sexual and emotional lives. This is almost always due to legalism. Clearly, the reason so many from legalistic church backgrounds so often have very grave and hidden and deeply troubling, even demonic, fantasy lives is a total misunderstanding of what it means to be human by avoiding the imagination or dealing with the imagination. Often and increasingly, such religious people end up in terrible double lives because the law they are under is even more demanding than the true law of God. The devil has come up with a hugely effective formula for defeating religious people. When I say religious, I mean, you understand they, they may be true believers, but they're not living in the understanding of grace. They, they live under a law. Impose the law, which Paul tells us stirs up the appetite for sin, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56, and Romans chapter 7, just to name a few scriptures. Paul tells us that the law strengthens or increases the power of, of, of the desire for sin. Uh, then we, we add to that man-made laws and various degrees of social punishment for breaking them that have nothing to do with the real Torah of God, resulting in the fearful religionist who denies their inner desires altogether and suppresses them. This suppression results in an increasingly strange battle with temptations and sometimes really weird temptations. Because the temptations become sordid and twisted. I mean, there's normal temptations, but then there's kind of what you call really weird temptations. And these weird deformities come out of a twisting of the soul brought on by the legalism. In the current climate of idolatry, where every sort of perversion is now easily accessible, the formula for an epidemic of duplicity and tragedy among religious people is abounding. The real gospel will heal them with love and truth and grace, never by suppressing them. Since they cannot successfully suppress them, they end up doing them. And like water spraying from a hose with a finger over the nozzle, suppressed sin spews up even more forcefully than ever. Religious legalism, which seeks to cut off the human function of the imagination in the name of holiness, is seriously flawed. It's totally unreasonable to claim reason apart from imagination. And though it is true that the Hebraic introduction to knowing God exalts word over image, this was only to lay the foundation of honoring the invisible holy God and not muddling his identity with the face of idols. Freedom from idols increases the true imagination. Gazing at idols dims it. Oswald Chambers addresses this in My Utmost for His Highest under the title, Is Your Imagination of God Starved? We'll read through that and then stop at some high points within that text. He begins with Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and behold, who has created these things? 
The people of God in Isaiah's day had starved their imagination by looking on the face of idols. And Isaiah made them look up at the heavens. That is, he made them begin to use their imagination correctly. Nature, to the saint, is sacramental. Now, let me pause here to say sacrament is a natural thing through which the holy invisible shines. Nature, people, bread and wine can all be sacramental if the imagination is able to see the transcendent invisible real shining through the the visible vessel. Okay, Chambers goes on to say, If we are children of God, we have a tremendous treasure in nature. In every wind that blows, every night and day of the year, every sign in the sky, every blossoming and withering of the earth, there's a real coming of God to us if we will simply use our starved imagination to realize it. Now, a number of examples of this can be seen in lots of literature, but, uh, of course, the one that always comes to my mind is Lord of the Rings. One example out of many, Sam and Frodo are trudging through the darkness of the land of Mordor on their mission to destroy the Ring of Power. They're exhausted and frightened. Then it says, quote, The land seemed full of creaking and cracking and sly noises, but there was no sound of voice or of foot. Far to the west, the night sky was still dim and pale. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkling for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond the shadow's reach. This is an example of the holy imagination pictured in nature within a work of literary imagination. Several years ago, I had an older student who was in all my classes, and he was a vociferous note-taker, good student in every way. But he would get very frustrated when I would take time to read out of anything other than Scripture or uh, commentary on Scripture. He he came to me one day, very honestly and humbly, but he, he, he said, I, I really don't see any reason to, to spend time on, on these, uh, these novels. And I said, well, David, why? And he said, uh, well, they're not true, are they? They're not real. I said, no, no, let's back up a minute. Let's, uh, let's define the word true and define the word real. And let's define the word myth. He said, well, you know, a myth is just a lie. And I said, well, that's, that's where we've got to start. A myth is not a lie. And I tried to explain to him uh, that a myth is a story that is so capable of carrying truth that it has to be presented much larger than what you might encounter in real life. So uh, a, a, a myth, when we say something is mythic, we don't mean it's not true. We mean it has so much truth in it that it takes a huge epic story to contain it. And um, 
Lewis, this is how Lewis came to really come to conversion. I mean, when, when Tolkien explained to him, uh, Lewis said, you know, all, all the myths of the pagans are just lies, and Jesus' resurrection is just another version of the the death, burial, and resurrection myths in paganism. And Tolkien turned it around on him and said, wait, you got it backwards. What if all those myths are shadows pointing to the real myth, which actually did happen in time and space and history? And when Lewis saw that, he could no longer escape the reality of the gospel. Well, David didn't quite get it. He walked away a little frustrated. He'd been raised in a denomination that abhorred anything that they considered ritualistic, even though in their own Pentecostal way, they had their own rituals and repetitive uh, behaviors that they always practiced every Sunday. But uh, David had a good heart, and because he had a heart that was open to the Holy Spirit, one day in the church history class, I just kind of casually begin to quote one of the creeds. We believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead and ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, from thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I was just quoting it for other reasons. I looked down. David was sitting on the front row, and there were tears just dripping off his chin. And I said, I said, David, are you all right? And he said, say that again. I said, say what? <laughs> he said, what you just said. He said, that's the most beautiful thing I ever heard. And this opened us up. I, I, I repeated it to him again. And, and then as we took a class break, I sat down with him and I said, why is this moving you so much? And it was the poetry of it. And, and then from that moment, I was able to begin to move him more towards understanding. I said, I said David, the, the creed is not the gospel. It's a compilation of truths that we do believe. But it's presented in in almost a poetic way, and somehow that got to your heart. And I said, do you, do you see how when when just black and white didactic teaching just hits our head, and maybe we never even digest it because of it's a little boring, actually. It doesn't touch our heart. It doesn't reach our soul, our center. Then it comes at us another way. And it, it, it penetrates, it reaches our heart. And really, the creed is more, to me, the creed is pretty didactic. It's, it's not that poetic. But see, David's heart was so starved for anything poetic, anything symbolic, anything that had some beauty and color to it other than just, we believe this. We, I'm not saying scripture doesn't have beauty and color to it, but I'm saying the way he was training, the way he trained himself to learn excluded anything imaginative or creative or symbolic because he considered all that just make-believe. It's just, you know, it's just your imagination, quote-unquote. Well, just your imagination is one of those misuses of the word imagination. It's one of those things we do in English that can denigrate and disintegrate the, the, the very meaning of, of imagination. Just your imagination is a way of saying it's not 
real and has no validity. Well, that doesn't even make room for the creative imagination or the uh, uh, holy imagination, which we'll talk about more later. Now, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, lying on rotted straw in a Russian gulag, betrayed by his communist comrades and fighting for his life against killing diseases, did what Sam did in Mordor. Through a window of memory, he recalled a phrase from Dostoevsky, Beauty will save the world, Dostoevsky had said. And in Solzhenitsyn's 1970 Nobel Prize acceptance speech, he referred to that event and asked if it might be possible that when the great trinity of goodness, truth, and beauty are seemingly being stamped out of the world, and evil is seemingly successfully crushing down the growth of goodness and truth, could it be possible for beauty to wrap around the stumps of goodness and truth and end up doing the work of all three? Beauty can save the world. Now, we understand that there is a, to quote the title of a book of several years ago, A Beautiful Side of Evil. The Nazis listened to Bach. Um, Al Capone would sit and listen to uh, presentations of Pagliacci with tears pouring down his face and then go kill somebody. So we're not saying beauty in itself is a redemptive power, but it has the capacity under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to be a tremendous roadway into the heart of man. That shouldn't have to be explained. We all know that. We all have versions of that. I mean, if nothing else, even David had pictures of his grandchildren in his pocket that he would show me now and then. And I said to him one day, well, David, uh, why don't you carry those pictures around? They're just paper and, and ink. And he looked at me like I had three heads. I said, well, they're, they're not real. They're just, they're just facsimiles. They're just, they're not real. <laughs> he, he finally did begin to get my point. We carry the image and symbol of those we love that we call pictures because they're the closest we can get to the real thing till we can get our arms around the real thing. God introduces himself to Israel through the reason of Torah. But he can certainly come at man's heart through other means than the word. In fact, to use words is to use symbols for words and symbols both bind up reality for us. Without the symbolism of words and the added symbolism of other things, actions, rituals, so forth, nothing could be communicated or known at all. C.S. Lewis, I mentioned a while ago, had embraced atheism as a youth, but after reading an imaginative novel by George MacDonald, Lewis says his imagination had been unconsciously baptized. Lewis goes on to explain in this context that though reason expounds truth, imagination reveals meaning, and no one can live without meaning. Quoting Lewis, Such then was the state of my imagination. Over against it stood the life of my intellect. 
The two hemispheres of my mind were in sharpest contrast. On the one side, a many-island sea of poetry and myth, but on the other, a glib and shallow rationalism. Nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary, which, of course, he means here false. Nearly all I believed to be real, I thought was grim and meaningless. Through the conversations Lewis later had with his friends Tolkien and Dyson, they addressed his rational questions, and they appealed to his reason. But it was the awakening of his imaginative mind that awakened his longing, something Lewis later called joy. Longing has to do with meaning, and meaning points to ultimate realities that are so large they cannot be contained by word or symbol, and the awareness of that reality is joy at its fullest. In his presence is fullness of joy at his right hand or pleasures forevermore. This touched his deepest need and caused him to begin to ask and to wrestle with the questions of the invisible real and faith. Now let me just mention here a vitally important point that I'm sure you already know, and that is it's ultimately neither reason or imagination that wins the heart of a person to Christ. But it's the supernatural grace of God at work through these two means. And without the Spirit of God, no man can come to God. Let me continue to quote Oswald Chambers here. The test of spiritual concentration is in bringing the imagination into captivity to what is real. Is your imagination looking on the face of an idol? It's God that you really need. One of the reasons for failure in prayer is that there is no imagination, no power of putting ourselves deliberately before God. Imagination is the power God gives a saint to place himself out of himself and into relationships he never was in. Now, let me comment here. Why is it we seem to be able to fully function in this concept when it comes to sinful imaginations? But we get all stumped and confused when anyone suggests we use the exact same function of the imagination in order to place ourselves into godly imaginations. Who has not fantasized about punching an unfair boss or coach or teacher in the nose? I, I, I guess probably mostly guys. Maybe girls have done that too. I don't know. Who has not imagined uh, being the greatest, being honored, being celebrated? Or I know people who have actually imagined their funeral and seen all the crying, distraught family members wishing they had been nicer to the deceased and enjoying the thought of their suffering at the funeral in order to pay them back for their sins against the imagined deceased. Do any of us have to even mention the issue of sex and romance situations we've placed ourselves in, in, in via the imagination? No difficulty there. But just let someone suggest that you purposefully see yourself in the presence of God, in the arms of Jesus, in any situation where you visualize yourself as being in a loving, affectionate interaction with God or in worshipful, direct encounter with Him. And all of a sudden, 
the same person who's drowning in lust or anger or painful memories and images of past events or current problems becomes super theological and refuses the very idea. Why, that's new age, or that's just fantasizing, or how dare you say that I could come into the presence of a holy God through my wicked fallen imagination? Never mind what the scriptures say. Never mind that you are told to come boldly into the throne of grace. Never mind that you are accepted in the beloved. Never mind that uh, the way has been opened into the holiest of all and that you have been given not just an invitation, but you've been called, you're longed for, your presence is welcomed. Isaiah 26, verse 3, you will, you will keep him in perfect peace whose imagination is stayed on thee. For he trusts in thee. Maybe the problem is whether we trust that God really has spoken truth. Maybe we're right back in the garden again, denying the word of God for the religious whispers of the devil. You do understand the devil loves religion. He can spin such eloquent sermons and quote verses in your head to back up that position. Uh, who can come into the presence of God? He who has a clean hands and a pure heart. You don't have clean hands and a pure heart, so you can't come into the presence of God. Well, stupid devil, how am I ever going to have clean hands and a pure heart if I can't come into the presence of holiness where where I can be cleansed and, and made pure? Yeah, anyway. Chambers goes on to say, The starved imagination is one of the most fruitful sources of exhaustion and stultification in prayer, sapping the strength of a believer's life. Uh, Now, this may refer to an imagination not tempted with lust or evil desire, but an imagination that's beaten up with regrets, fears, shame, or griefs that have turned into what I call a devil's narrative. Now, what I mean by that is, here the imagination is, I mean, we all know about impure imaginations. I mean, sadly, we live in a culture where you almost have to live, you know, in a in a cave somewhere and never go out, not to get your imagination attacked with lust or something related to that world. But I find just as many people, and I'm one of them, I mean, I, I've had to battle to protect my mind from imaginations related to sorrow. Uh, I mean, the enemy will, he'll pick up parts of my memory and then he'll take those parts of memory and begin to weave what I call a devil's narrative out of those memories. And before you know it, he's either taken actual events, which you overcome by believing God's promise that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. See, you you don't even let him have the real material, but people not only give him the real material as if the blood of Jesus hasn't cleansed it, but then he'll take he'll take bits and pieces of things that are not even real material. You 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 start imagining not only that you've lost this friendship, but you start imagining things they're saying about you behind your back because you have hurt them. And then you get offended and hurt because they've said something in your imagination that they never really even said. 
wicked imaginations, twisted, crooked, wicked. The word wicked there, Avon in Hebrew, doesn't it doesn't mean like wicked witch of the West. It, it's the word. It's where we get our English word wicker. It has to do with bent, that which is bent. And the enemy will just take something and bend it. Did you, did you catch their tone of voice? Oh, they might have said good morning, but did you say, did you notice the way they said good morning? It was like, well, good morning. Well, it, they may or may not have said it like that, but if, if they said it with a clip in their tone of voice, forgive it. More than likely, they didn't even have that in mind. Anyway, Chambers goes on to say here, if you've never used your imagination to put yourself before God, begin to do it now. It's no use waiting for God. Now, that's a very important key. You, don't, you know, people wait for God to just come do something to them. And what they really mean is do something to their body. Uh, give them a sensation, a feeling, a goosebump, a, a, a feelings of love. There's no feeling without a picture. There's no picture without a feeling. Can God give feelings directly? Well, yes, but so can drugs. God doesn't deal with us that way normally. Uh, this is why I keep a hymn book handy in my prayer times. When, when I, my prayer times are dry, when I go in feeling nothing, it doesn't take but just a few minutes. Uh, if I take the poetry of a glorious hymn that exalts the, 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 the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God. <laughs> In just a few seconds, I'm rising above my physical feelings, my emotional downturns. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. David exhorts his soul to come up out of the lower regions where it is sank and begin to give honor to God and the results is in your presence is fullness of joy and your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Chambers concludes this by saying you must put away, uh, you must put your imagination away from the face of idols. Whatever in your mind is contradicting God's promise, that's an idol. And look to God and be saved. Well, saved from what? I've got seven categories here that I've listed. You might be able to list a few more, but saved from unclean imaginations. What happens when your mind is accosted? Maybe it's a history of pornographic idol worship. We'll have a whole series eventually on just dealing with that subject alone. But for now... What if you just, uh, you don't need to wait for a whole cotton-picking series. You just need to know what to do. Well, this might be very childish to some of you, but uh, the way to deal with unclean images in the mind, memories, pictures, is to reach up with your hand like a little child, grab that picture, pull it out of the, the head like you'd pull a tissue out of a tissue box. Just pull that memory, childlike. Pull it out of your head with your fingers. Use your hand. You know, your body cooperates with sin. Let your body cooperate with prayer. Pull that picture out and hand it to the Lord. And watch what he does with it. You might say, well, look, I got more than just a few tissues. I got a whole stream of things. Well, then pull it out like you'd pull 
film out of a projector. Just pull it, pull it out. You don't have to look at every one of them. Just by faith, in a childlike way, pull that stuff out and hand it to the Lord. Now, uh, I want to pause here. I might end up taking up all the rest of the time that we've got to tell this story, but it's such an important story, and it illustrates so powerfully what we're talking about that I'm going to I'm going to tell it. In the early days of this ministry, I was speaking at the University of Kentucky, and a young freshman football player came into the meeting, sat in the back. He was very nervous. And I was watching him. He uh, he waited around. I knew he was wanting to talk. And so I purposely made myself available at the end. And he approached me very nervously and began to unfold to me a story that uh, he I, I understood why he was so afraid to tell. In his high school career as a as an athlete, he had been raised by a father who was himself a former high school football coach and had lived his fantasies through his son of being a great football player himself. And so he pushed this boy and pushed this boy until um, much of his inner life he had to suppress to please his father. And so he had become a fairly good athlete, but later on in my prayer time with him, it was uncovered that much of the energy that moved him on the field was anger. And he told me, he said, yeah, he said, I, I, I mow guys down who are in front of me. He said, all I have to do, now get this, speaking of the imagination, all I have to do to mow them down is picture my father's face on their face. And he said, I just knock them down even if they're twice my size. And on a positive side here, we could spend a whole hour just talking about the tremendous progress that can be made in sports training with the use of healthy, imaginative uh, concepts that can train the brain to move the body in directions that far exceed its former performance because the imagination begins to strengthen the body in that direction. See, we only think of that as working with sin. You know, it's just amazing. It, it, we all know about what imagination does to stir up desires for for sin in the body. Advertisers know it really well, so they can paint pictures in front of our eyes that cause us to want stuff we don't need and spend money we don't have on it to impress people we don't like. And that's the story of advertising, for the most part. There are a few exceptions. But anyway, this young man uh, explained uh, some of the things inside of him that he had never been able to express. He he had a, a poetic nature to him, a kind of a uh, underdeveloped and uninformed and uneducated romantic side to him. I'm not talking about some fleshly romanticism uh, that, that lends itself to the erotic or to childish fantasy. I'm talking about uh, writing, creativity. I mean, he eventually became uh, a really outstanding architect, but uh, he had the ability to draw. He had the ability to uh, conceptualize. And those those uh, right and left brain gifts came together and produced his profession that he's in now. But no, his father wanted him to be a pro football player. And he was going to make him be one no matter what. And so the boy's athletic 
prowess was more energized by bitterness and anger toward his father. But to confuse things even more, he became emotionally tied to a young coach who was uh, who, who seduced him into a sexual relationship. That was the part that he could hardly bear to talk about. And so, uh, and let me just mention here, just as an aside, he could hardly bear to talk about it because of the hypocrisy of of the religious people around him who made it clear in their verbiage and in their behavior that all forms of sexual sin are okay and God can forgive everything except this particular one. And so here again, a young man who needed love and support and guidance to, to, to progress past this struggle was uh, not only kept bound in it, but made to feel that he was uh, more in need of grace than the rest of the human race and that God wasn't likely to give him any grace. So they galvanized him into a secret life by their self-righteousness and hypocrisy. But the point is, uh, as I began to pray with him for uh, this this particular aspect of, of what he'd come for, I said to him, were you emotionally tied or was it sexually involved? And he, he said, no, it was just emotional. I've, I've, never, I've never been involved directly. And so as we prayed for him, uh, his pastor, the pastor there that I was working with, as, as he and I prayed together with him, we had him pull these pictures out, pictures of pornography, pictures of secret encounters uh, with pornography only. Now, this I'm telling you this so you'll really get a hold of how real this is. As he was pulling the pictures out, that seemed to be no difficulty. But then he began to struggle, and his face became red, and his muscles tensed up. And it was as if he was trying to pull something out that would not, would not budge. And I knew in my spirit, and I knew from past experience, he was trying to pull out, not a memory, but a soul tie. The Bible says that when you join yourself sexually to another person, you become one flesh with that person. Uh, that principle holds true whether the relationship is legitimate or, or, or broken, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. or I mean, there's good soul ties um, that obviously a husband and a wife joined together and are supposed to be one flesh. But every other misuse of the body uh, and, and sexual relationship becomes a, a, a bondage, a, a problem. And I said to him, I said, you're having trouble pulling this out. This is not a memory uh, of, of, of a picture, is it? This is an actual event. And uh, tears began to come. And he said, I didn't tell you the truth. He said, we, we were physically involved. And he said, I, I, I just thought I, I could keep the memory. He said, we, we were not in touch with each other at all. But he said, I've kept the memory to hold up my insides. Now, you see, I don't want to get too much into all of this because this is such a, it's such an informative story on so many levels. We could spend a solid two or three hours just analyzing the different layers of meaning in this story, but having not been fathered well, 
having a bully for a father. Uh, I found out later that his father had broken his nose twice before he was seven years old, trying to uh, teach him how to block. Uh, And uh, his mother had uh, just stood by and let this happen twice because she was a good, quote, submissive churchwoman who didn't want to dishonor her husband. So she lets her husband bully and hurt her her son uh, in the name of a false concept of submission. But anyway, uh, the, the rage that this had built up in the boy toward his father had, of course, broken him off from his father emotionally, and he's trying to reconnect. And so who does he end up reconnecting with but a young man who sexualizes the relationship and deeply confuses uh, the rest of their their interaction? And so uh, we we prayed with him differently now. We don't pray to pull the pictures out. Now we pray for the breaking of the soul tie, and we pray for him to be willing to release the memory and to no longer use the memory of this bond with this older young man to comfort himself. Now, this is where the idolatry really is confronted. Those who give themselves to false idols forsake their own mercy, Jonah chapter 2, remember? So if you're going to be healed, if you're going to come free, this is true across the board, whether it's uh, some uh, homosexual uh, romantic bond here, or it can be true in many, many versions of heterosexual relationships where you have made an idol of of that person and you're you're not going to trust God for your future you're not going to relinquish your emotional hold on the memory of the person you're going to keep holding on to it and it becomes an idol and you are forsaking the mercy God wants to give you because you will not release them now i want to tell you from experience you may have to release someone more than one time. I mean, it may take quite a while. And it's not just romantic relationships. This can be in friendships. It can be in all kinds of relationships where you you have lost someone you love by misunderstanding, by uh, any number of ways that we lose each other in relationship. Uh, but you keep offering it to God. You keep bringing it to God. No matter how long it takes, your soul will eventually begin to get the message that your your will is set to obey God and look to him and him alone for the source of your life and not to look not to look uh, to turn toward the creature instead of the creator well we prayed with him for the breaking of the soul tie he went home he called the next day and he said my mind is empty but he said I'm so depressed I, I don't know how to I'm going to live Now, that was not a surprise either. It's understandable that the only thing propping up his mental life, his emotional life, was this memory of this relationship. And he kept that memory alive in his imagination. If he gives that up, and that's the only thing propping up the roof of his world, then when he gives up the pillar that's holding it up, the the roof caves in on him. So, of course, he's depressed. So then we were able to go in and pray the next level of prayers, which had to do with breaking the symbolic confusion. I'll talk more about symbolic confusion here in just a bit. But 
Breaking the symbolic confusion means cutting him free from uh, looking to a sexual relationship instead of looking to the Lord to be his true father. He had to forgive his father. By the way, when he forgave his father, much of his energy on the athletic field diminished because that wasn't where his heart was. He was a good athlete, but he wasn't a lifelong professional athlete. That wasn't what he was about. And his father didn't know what he was about because he didn't care. He just wanted him to be a, a tool for for the father's uh, fantasy uh, to be fulfilled. So, uh, anyway, do you see here the, the several things going on here? The, the, the images and the unclean pictures, they could be pulled out and were, he pulled them out and he gave them to the Lord and he watched to see what the Lord would do with them. And uh, every person has a different picture in their mind of what the Lord does with these pictures. But it's right and good for you to watch to see what the Lord does with those things when you pull them out. But then when it comes to a soul tie, the imagination goes to a different level than just recalling images and photographs and pictures. Because interaction with a real human being is far more real and substantive than interaction with a photograph. And so when he begins to try to pull that out and just fake it and slide by, his body, soul, and emotions betrayed his lie and revealed it inadvertently. And thankfully it did, because then we were able to really help him get to the bottom of the source of his sorrow, and the source of his suffering, and the source of his sin. And uh, he was able to uh, to go free and come into his true identity. So I'll have more to say about those things later on in this list. I'm not going to be able to finish this list in the time that we've got left. But uh, maybe I'll just read through them for the sake of uh, of being able to bring this session to a close. And then in our next session, we'll pick up these same items in more detail. But the seven categories that I'm going to list here that we need healing from, we, we, we need to be saved from, that looking to God saves us from. I've started with this first one, the unclean imagination. The next one I've called the starved imagination. The starved imagination. This is where the imagination is so deprived of meaning and goodness that the capacity for the imagination is is blank. And this results, because there's no picture without a feeling and no feeling without a picture, this kind of blankness results in a blankness in the emotions and a blankness in living. Number three, a tormented imagination. I've already mentioned this, but a tormented imagination is an imagination that has a reoccurring devil's narrative playing in it. Remember, I I mentioned a few minutes ago about the devil's narrative, where he takes bits and pieces of unhealed memories and unhealed relationships and things you're ashamed of or things you're frightened of or things you worry about, things you nurse in your mind over and over. He gathers all those, and then he starts adding to it with whatever you happen to encounter during the day. And then he starts whispering into your ear 
well, this is all happening because so-and-so and so-and-so, or this is, you're being punished, this is why you're suffering, or any number of things. We'll talk about the tormented imagination more in our next session. Number four, the seduced imagination. Uh, this is an imagination where you're getting intruded upon with thoughts that you don't necessarily relate to and can't find any roots of. It's coming at you from the outside. It can be demonic. Quite often it is demonic, but not always demonic. We'll, we'll examine that. Number five, the blank imagination. Now, the blank imagination is a little different from the starved imagination. The starved imagination has to do with deprivation. The blank imagination has to do with an event so devastating that it shuts the imagination down. Um, The difference between the two is rather like the difference between some people are emotionally hurt by having never known love or care Other people are hurt because they've known love and care and that love and care was deprived or interrupted. It's like, what's the difference between an amputated leg and a broken leg? Well, the broken leg, everything's present, but it's broken. The amputated leg, there's nothing there but phantom pain. It's harder to heal that which never was given than it is to heal that which was but was damaged. Uh, it takes more energy and more insight and more care and more discernment and more support to minister to those who never, ever had the right help than it is to help someone who had some help, but for some reason it was interrupted or damaged. Well, the starved imagination, there never was anything given. The blank imagination, it was forming properly and then something happened that was devastating. We'll talk more about that. Number six, the confused imagination. Now, this is symbolic confusion, and I'll have to spend a good deal of time on symbolic confusion, because if you understand symbolic confusion, you'll be able to help people with all kinds of difficulties, uh, emotional difficulties, relational difficulties, getting over broken relationships, getting past uh, losses uh, of, of various kinds. And then number seven, the demonic imagination, where the imagination is manifestly being attacked by images of evil coming from the kingdom of darkness. So, We're going to talk about the unclean imagination. I've already spent a good deal on that, so I don't know that we'll spend much more time on that. Then number two, the starved imagination. Number three, the tormented imagination. Number four, the seduced imagination. Number five, the blank imagination. Number six, the confused imagination. And number seven, the demonic imagination. Now, in the time that we've got left uh, in closing, let me just say, This also will bring up the whole subject of dreams and transference and how to cleanse your inner being from the debris 
the the enemy uses to to create all kinds of problems. And so, uh, how do how do we get to that? Well, we'll deal with that in our next session. Let's let's pray before we get off here, because this is this is dangerous territory without the Lord's guidance and protection. Father, for all those listening, for all those who may be troubled by what we've covered here, maybe one sentence was just enough to trigger all kinds of memories or feelings or struggles, or it's brought to the surface things that they've been successfully suppressing. I I, I lift them into your presence, and I ask, Father, that your grace would pour toward them. I pray especially for any person who's been under religious legalistic bondage, and they've been suppressing things out of shame that they need to bring naked into your presence. They need to stop hiding from you and running away from you and covering themselves with fig leaves. And they need to let you in to those things. Uh, I pray for those, Father, who have uh, tormenting memories, memories where different pieces of uh, the shards of the past, the enemy takes them and piles them together and makes uh, tormenting uh, material out of it. We give it to you, Lord, now in Jesus' name.